You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to Exodus chapter 17. Appreciate Dale and our worship team leading us this morning in song and just even the, the choice of songs today. I don't know how many of you took me up on my encouragement last week to read and study ahead in Exodus chapter 17 to prep yourself to sing well this morning in response to what you've been studying all week. But if you did, then hopefully you saw the correlation of those songs to what we're going to see today, just the aspects of uh, the grace and, and mercy that we receive from God, things that we don't deserve, God gives us in abundance. We're going to see that today. Um, the fact that while our sins are many, His grace is more, His mercy is more uh, to extend to us. And uh, certainly uh, the, the last song that we sing, uh, we sang this morning just seemed that Jesus is all that we need, that Jesus is the ultimate provision from God for us. So while God doesn't always give us everything that we want, uh, he does meet our deepest needs, and so he is all that we need, and so we're going to see that today too. So um, if you have your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 17, uh, I want to read to you our text this morning. The last couple of weeks in Exodus, we've looked at God's provision of water, and we've looked at his provision of bread and food for his people. And today we come back to a similar theme of him having to provide water once again. And it, it, may, it, it may initially look like a repetitive type text, based on what we've already looked at. Hopefully we're going to see some new insights today that will grow our faith and dependency upon the Lord. It says in verse 1 of chapter 17, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Our summary sentence for today. We must see the everyday challenges of life as appropriate tests from God to increase our dependency on Him while resisting the temptation to test God about His own faithful goodness since He has already proven Himself sufficiently. We must see the everyday challenges of life as appropriate tests from God to increase our dependency on Him while resisting the temptation to test God about His own faithful goodness since he has already proven himself sufficiently. For our kids, God gives us trials so we will learn to trust him more. This is a passage about testing. It's a passage where uh, God intended to test his people, 
And yet in the midst of it, the people flipped the script and began testing God and his faithfulness. It was meant to be an opportunity for their faith to grow, for them to be challenged in their dependency upon God. And yet in the midst of it, they aren't seeing it that way. Instead, they see a dire circumstance that becomes a testing point for God and his faithfulness. God has the right to test as he seeks to instruct and grow his people. Think in terms of what a teacher does, right? So our students are enjoying summer break. Uh, School is not that far away, and we'll be getting into a new school year. And oftentimes for our students, like testing creates a level of anxiety, right? It requires studying. it It requires application of what's been learned over the past several weeks. And Um, oftentimes it brings anxious feelings, right? Why do teachers test? Well, they test because our students need to prove competency of what they've been instructed in to show that they can move on to the next level of material, right? As a, as a principal, I don't do a whole lot of teaching right now, um, but I do at times have to administer uh, tests for incoming students, right? And I'll sit with parents at times and have to tell them yay or nay as to whether their child can come to Trinity based on their testing performance, And sometimes I'll sit with parents who misunderstand the purpose of the test and they feel like I'm punishing or disciplining their child and not letting them come to Trinity because of of failing a test. And and I try to recorrect that that mentality and saying, hey, the reason that we're saying no right now is because we care about your child. And your child is incapable right now of proving that they can be successful here. That's what a test is. A test is, is to show that a student proves their capability proves their understanding of the content that's been given to them. God has the right to test as he instructs us as his people and grows us as his people, just like a teacher would do. God is not to be tested because he has already proved himself, just like a teacher, right? He's to be trusted instead. Sometimes we have to remind our students and our parents at Trinity to trust the teacher, right? Because oftentimes our students and parents want to test the teacher, right? Like they want to, to attack the teacher, criticize the teacher, test the teacher as though the teacher hasn't proven their capabilities of doing their job or hasn't proven their, their competency of the subject. It's not uncommon for, uh, for me to have to respond to a student or a parent after they failed a test because that student or parent wants to criticize the teacher. Hey, you didn't prepare me right? You weren't with me in this. You were actually against me. You were vindicative in this test. Like it was, it was meant to be too hard or you meant it to be tricky. Israel responds like an angry parent or a student in school. This test comes to them, but instead they want to test God and whether he's a valid teacher. They want to criticize him. Have you provided what we need? Are you going to give us water? Are you with us or against us? The passage ends with the idea that they were quarreling and testing God with the question, is the Lord among us or not? It's a passage about testing. This account at Rephidim results in a new name for this area. Moses has to to rename it Massa and Meribah. Testing and quarreling is what these two uh, names mean. Now, we'll talk at the very end of our sermon what the term Rephidim means, what that place was meant to be. But they have turned it into a place of testing and quarreling. As we've already said, this is the third time they're grumbling about physical provision, right? It's the third time the people have been tested about their trust in Yahweh. They were tested at Marah, where the bitter water 
was present, right? God leads them to bitter water. They can't drink it. They feel like they're going to die of thirst. They grumble against Moses. You've called us out here to die, right? Like there's a questioning of God's provision. They, they grumble in the wilderness of sin about the food and the lack of food, right? They, they, they feel like God's not going to provide for them sustenance to eat. This is the third time now they're grumbling about physical provision. Note, in the previous two, God came through and provided But this need arises again, and they dare to test the Lord, is what the passage says. They test his ability to provide for them. Is he with us? Will he provide for us? Now, again, the text doesn't continue to tell us things that are happening, but it's worth, as we meditate on this passage, contemplating the fact, right? Like they're bringing up, God, will you meet our needs? Will you provide for us? God, are you even with us? The text doesn't explicitly say it, but we know from the other passages that told us that God started to do this and he did this until they got to the promised land that God is still providing manna for them every morning at this time, right? So in the midst of their grumbling and complaining, right? Like the family gets up that morning, they're sitting around the table, they're eating manna. And in the midst of having breakfast, they're saying, will God take care of us, right? Like, hey, don't forget to go out and get the, the, the food that's been provided for us right outside our doorstep miraculously, And while they're doing it, they're grumbling and complaining about whether God's going to provide. They're grumbling and complaining, is God with us? I mean, all they have to do is open the door of their tent and see a giant cloud or a giant pillar of fire, depending on what time of day they look out their tent, to see that God is with them. There's no question about it. He's going with them everywhere they go. The passage starts by saying that they are led to this area because God brings them there. And we know that he brings them there by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. They're grumbling and complaining, is God with us? (coughs) Excuse me, will God provide for us? While they're eating manna, while they're looking at a cloud. This is the third time they're taking the same test. It's a retest, right? Sometimes I have to tell our uh, teachers that in light of students doing poorly on an assessment that they've got to give the test again, right? So we'll look at class averages. We won't retest just because one or two people fail. But if the majority of a class struggles on an assessment, there's no need to go to the next level of content because our class hasn't mastered it, right? So we'll have conversations with teachers and say, hey, you need to reteach some of this content, reteach some of this material, and then we need to test these students again to see if they can do better this time around because they haven't mastered it, right? This is the third retest now that that, that God's having to give to his people because they keep failing the test, right? So don't look at this passage and think, man, God's just wearing these people out, right? Like he's just putting them through test after test after test. Sometimes our parents at Trinity get critical of December and May because there's so much testing that takes place. Don't look at this and say, man, God is just overly testing his people, But he's retesting his people because they're not learning the lessons. They're not passing the test, right? What should be appropriate testing by God that leads to growth and increased faith becomes a people's trial for God about his worthiness for trust and obedience. That's what happens here. The people of Israel flip the script and say, no, 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 we're not taking a test. You're taking a test. We're putting you on trial, God. Are you worthy of our trust? Are you worthy of our obedience? Are you going to take care of us? Are you going to provide for us? Are you going to be with us? Because it doesn't feel like that. 
And we've been talking all along during this series that there's times in our life and there's times maybe this past week or times this upcoming week where you're going to maybe at times feel like, is God with me? Is God going to provide for me? Is God going to take care of me? These people put God on trial. Think about the grievances that they're bringing to God here. We've talked before about how the, the covenants that God makes are similar to the type of covenants that we make within marriages, right? Like these commitments to one another. The grievances that the people of Israel bring are the type of grievances that you might would expect to hear at a divorce hearing, right? Like, hey, my spouse has neglected to provide for me. My spouse has refused to, to protect me. My spouse has failed to be present with me. These are the accusations that are brought by Israel against God as though there's contemplation that, hey, we might divorce you. Like we might, we might want out of this covenant because you're not upholding your end of the bargain. It's, 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 it's extremely uh, evil what, what's being uh, garnered here by the people of Israel towards God because the exact opposite we know to be true, right? That God has never failed to be with them. He's continually provided for them and he's offered constant protection for them. But they bring these grievances. The goal of this passage, seven verses today that we're looking at, the goal of this passage is God unnecessarily proves he didn't bring them out of Egypt to kill them and indeed remains with them always. He doesn't have to prove this again. He unnecessarily does it, though. He chooses to prove once again that he didn't bring them out of Egypt to kill them and indeed remains with them always. Now, the encouragement for us to why we would teach one more sermon again on similar themes that we've seen so far is that we are warned repeatedly in the New Testament not to repeat these same mistakes, right? If we look in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, the author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 95, and Psalm 95 is referencing Exodus 17. Look what Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We're told to, to hear God's word today, to not harden our hearts as those who during a time of testing in the wilderness did in response to God's work. He says in verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. What's the, what's the purpose of that passage? Here's what that passage is saying in layman's terms. It's saying if you're not careful, you'll approach this next week, and you'll have these everyday challenges that come for everybody. And if you're not careful, your heart will grow hard to the things of God because you will find yourself in circumstances that you don't like, that you didn't choose, and that you would like to get out of, right? And you're drawn to question, where is God in all of this? What's he doing? Why is he not providing? Why is he not protecting? And your heart grows hard to that. 
and it becomes a rebellious type spirit that can lead you to fall away, right? It's a clear warning. Now, we don't believe that you can lose your salvation here at Sovereign Hope. Like, we believe that the scriptures clearly teach that if you are saved, you will not fall away. But we will also teach that these warnings in Hebrews are put here to ensure that if you are truly a Christian, you won't fall away because you'll heed the warning, right? You'll see the, the yield sign. You'll see the warning sign and you'll say, you know what? I need to live my life in such a way to protect myself from falling away. I need to live in such a way where I'm in community with other people so that if I start to feel hardened, that there are people in my life who can exhort me back to the right way of thinking. That's what's happening here. He's saying, there's going to be times where you go through the week and you're tempted to test God and you're tempted to question God and, and you want to quarrel with God. And you need people in your life who will speak truth to you, who will say, hey, don't forget the goodness of God. Don't forget the faithfulness of God. Don't forget how God has provided for you in the past. Anticipate that he's going to keep doing that in the present and in the future. Let us be careful that we're not guilty of the same response to his same faithfulness. Don't fall away by letting your hearts grow hard in unbelief about God working in your life. Instead, we need to know and remember his ways. Number one in our notes today, we need to trust God's provision rather than testing his faithfulness. Trust God's provision rather than testing his faithfulness. There's a question that's being asked here. Uh, it, it's implied, even though it's not explicitly listed in the question format, but the question that the people are asking is, will you give us water to drink? Will you give us water to drink? Instead, they demand it by saying, give us water to drink. Now, this question, this demand, it comes from a valid need, right? Like we've talked about two weeks ago, you, you need water to survive, right? So this isn't an, an unhealthy ask. It's not an unhealthy request. They're not asking for, for a new car versus a used car. They're not asking for a brand new house versus a used house. They're, they're asking for a, a true need. Like we got to have water to live. It comes from a valid need, but it comes from, the, from a mindset that it has not been met in their time frame. Will you give us water to drink? Valid need, but the complaint is that it's not been met in the people's time frame. Let me encourage you to be careful about making demands for what you think you deserve. Be careful about making demands for what you think you deserve. This quarreling and testing mindset, it comes from them people insisting that God work on their terms and meet their expectations. If we're honest with ourselves, we would say that we complain when God doesn't do what we think he should do, how we think he should do it, and when we think he should do it. Like when, when we put God in, in, in an expectation box that we have, and then he doesn't do it how we want him to do it, or when we think he should do it, right? Then we start to grumble and complain and to distrust him. And these attacks come to Moses, but as we've said already in the past couple of weeks, they're not really attacks against Moses, they're attacks against God. And Moses directs the people accordingly, right? Verse two, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? It's the Lord who these attacks are really coming up against. Moses redirects the attacks to the true target. It's God, which is a reminder to us that all of our complaints, all of our discontentments in this life must be seen as dissatisfaction with God's provision in our life. 
And if we're in that type of mindset, we are testing God by putting him on trial for not running the world like we would prefer. The Bible, Hebrews, question, or cautions us to not question God in this way. To be careful about making demands that we think we deserve in our time frame. The Lord's certainly going to give them water, right? Like it's not a question really of whether he is going to provide it. And yet they're not willing to patiently wait or patiently ask him for it, right? Like they just come demanding it and attacking the fact that he hasn't already done it. Number two, be careful about letting your discontentment lead you into more serious sins. Be careful about letting your discontentment lead you into more serious sins. Their irritableness due to a lack of water puts them in a position to commit even worse acts. Notice what Moses feels in regards to the pressure, right? Verse three says, the people thirsted there for water. The people grumbled against Moses and said, why'd you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cries to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. Maybe you've, you've thought or even verbalized to people like, hey, I got to eat something or I got to drink something because if not, I'm going to lose it on somebody. Like there's times when you get that way, right? Like there's, there's individual needs that you have that haven't been met that make you irritable and potentially open yourself up to more serious sins. I mean, they're on the verge of stoning God's prophet because they haven't had a drink of water in a while, right? Like a, a valid need, yes, but it escalates very quickly to where they're ready to commit more serious sins. We have to be careful that, that in our uh, lack of being fulfilled, maybe in ways that we want or desire, uh, that lack of fulfillment leading to discontentment and then it opening the door for more serious sins. Oftentimes in our need of stress, in our need, our times of need or times of stress, we act out in sinful ways because our guard is down. They're ready to kill God's prophet. Or at least Moses gets that impression. He feels that pressure all over a lack of water right now. We need to trust God's provision rather than testing his faithfulness. The real question that's being asked by God, because he's the one providing the test, is will we see that we need God more than we need anything else? He's already provided food. He's already provided water for him. He's already shown that he's capable of doing this in miraculous ways. He's shown that he can bring you to the, the most remote place in a desert where there is none of this stuff and then give it to you, right? So he's already shown that he can do this. He's calling his people to trust him, to trust his provision, not to test his faithfulness. And, and, they're, and they're, they're asking questions. Are you gonna do this? Are you gonna provide for us? Are you gonna give to us? All the while, the real question, the real test that's being given is, will you see that you need me more than anything else? Will you see that you need me, that I'm the most important thing? Because remember, he's trying to recondition their minds, recondition their hearts. They're coming out of Egypt, but he's trying to get Egypt out of them, right? And so he's trying to condition them to see he's the most important thing. He's the author and finisher of life for them. And they are to come for him for everything, Same for us. Like we have to learn that lesson as we come to Christ, we begin to follow him. It's easier maybe when we're younger to be able to put that type of trust in him. Maybe harder as we get older if we come to Christ later in life. But either way, we have to learn the lesson that Christ is the most important thing that we need. 
He's, he's more important than food and water. That's what Jesus would tell his disciples, right? Like they were constantly worrying about food and water and shelter. And Jesus is like, look, those things will come. You don't have to worry about those things. Like you have me and I'm far superior to those needs. Trust God's provision rather than testing his faithfulness. Number two, assume God's protection rather than accusing his intentions. Assume God's protection rather than accusing his intentions. The question that Israel wants to test God with is asked in an explicit way. Why did you bring us here to kill us? Why did you bring us here to kill us? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This comes from an invalid fear that their need will not be met at all comes from an invalid fear that their need will not be met at all. The first question, will you even give us water, comes from, hey, you haven't, you haven't given to us in our time frame. We would have expected to already have it. This question escalates it to, we don't think you're going to give it to us. We don't, we, don't, we don't believe you. We don't trust you. In fact, we think the worst of you. We think that you have evil intentions. We think you're going to kill us. You're going, to let us, you're going to let us die of thirst out here. Don't abandon the past goodness of God during present times of uncertainty. Their biggest problem is they refused to remember who God is and what he had done specifically. Let me draw your attention to the Psalms. Again, this is how we ended up in Exodus, right? Because the Psalms mention Exodus so much. Psalms chapter 78, verse 40 through 41 how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Verse 42, they did not remember his power or the day when, they re- when he redeemed them from their foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zoan. They don't remember. They don't draw upon his past faithfulness to reassure them in the present. Psalm chapter 95 Verses seven through nine. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof that they had, though they had seen my work. He says, don't be like these people. Though they had seen my work, they had seen my faithfulness, they had seen my provision, they put me to the test. Don't abandon the past faithfulness of God, the past goodness of God during present times of uncertainty. Psalm 106, verse 13. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. They forgot. They didn't remember now, if we're the audience, like watching a movie, right? You watch a movie play out and you're, and you're prone to, to verbalize what you think the characters should be doing. Like, how could they be so silly? How could they not see this? Why are they not doing this? Why are they doing this, right? Um, we read this with a similar type mindset and we say, why don't they remember? Why don't they remember that he gave them sweet water when the water was bitter? Why do they not remember that he led them to an oasis? Why do they not remember that they get manna every morning? And yet we do the same thing. We forget. We forget, right? 
Like I'm in a season of life right now with our family where we need God to provide us a house, right? A house that, that works for our family needs, that's in a location that allows us to serve both, of, both our ministry at Trinity and our ministry here at Sovereign Hope. We need that. We need God to provide that. Now, for those of you that are worried about where we're going to live at the end of July, I did get our departure date extended to the end of August. So we have a house for August. It's the one we're currently living in, right? We don't have anything after August as of now. I need that. My wife needs that. Our kids need that, right? I'm also in a season of summer where I've got a really important teacher vacancy that came open at the end of the school year right? A big teacher situation that I need somebody to, to fill and I need God to provide it, right? So I've been kind of walking through this summer thinking like, man, I need a house and I need a teacher and is God going to provide these things? And then God kind of stopped me in my studies yesterday and he said, hey, remember a decade ago when you were moving to Sonoy and you needed a house and you couldn't find one and you couldn't find one and you couldn't find one and you drove from Griffin for a year teaching at Trinity until he provided one. And the one that he provided for us was initially listed for $40,000 more than we ended up paying for it. Because we looked at it and we said, man, that would be a great house, but it's way too expensive. We can't afford it. And then we moved in. This time last year, I was in desperate need of an English teacher. And English teachers are incredibly hard to find in January when you first start the hiring season, much less July, right, when everybody's already signed their contracts, right? And so I'm desperately trying to find an English teacher. I'm trying to think of every crazy way to fill these classes. And then lo and behold, this, this lady walks in and says, hey, I've been staying at home with my baby for a while and I'm ready to get back into teaching. And she's awesome, right? So God's already provided a house for me in the past. He's already provided a teacher in July when I needed one in the past. And here I find myself again, but I find myself being tempted to wonder, can God really provide a house and a teacher? Right? And if you were reading my story, you would say, hey, he's done it already. He's done it before. Why would you not remember that he's shown himself to be faithful? But we're like Israel a lot of times. We forget. We don't remember his past provision. Don't abandon the past goodness of God during present times of uncertainty. Number two, don't envision evil results as though God hasn't already promised alternate plans. The people here want to hold God responsible. Instead of trusting him, they're ready to judge him, right? Like they're, they're assuming the worst. Like, hey, you brought us here to kill us. You brought us here to kill us. And yet he's already promised them, I'm going to take you to the land and you're going to worship me and you're going to serve me and I'm going to establish you there. He's already given them a totally alternate differing end to all of this. And they're not seeing it. Instead, they're envisioning evil results. We do the same too sometimes. But scripture is very clear that trials are meant for good purposes in our life, right? He isn't trying to harm us. He isn't trying to tempt us in our trials. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us that there's always a way of escape from the temptation, right? God doesn't try to wreck our faith with trials. You may think at times that your child has had a, a teacher who was trying to ruin their educational career with the ways that they handled their grading, right? I've sat with parents who thought our teachers were the worst possible individuals who were trying to ruin their child's academic career, right? That's not who God is. God is not trying to wreck your faith by bringing you through trials that you can't come through. He empowers us with the Holy Spirit. He allows us to know his faithfulness in the past, which ought to spur us on to trusting him and depending on him in the present, Trials are meant for good purposes in our life. They grow us. 
so that we can prove our faith. God is shaping you to be like Jesus, which means if we receive each circumstance with that in mind, it changes how we react to momentary inconveniences. The children of Israel are saying, why'd you bring us here to kill us? That's the question they're asking on their test. But the real question, because he's already delivered them from evil, right? He brought them through the Red Sea. He killed the Egyptians. He rescued them from slavery. He's not out to kill them. The real question is, will we embrace the fact that he saved us with a purpose of sanctifying us? If you're saved here this morning, God didn't just save you to give you a life of comfort, right? He saved you to make you like his son, Jesus. He saved you to conform you to the image of his son. And part of that process of conforming is bringing you through trials where we're forced to depend upon him. We're forced to depend upon him. I mean, I'd love to go find a house and a teacher to solve these situations myself. I'd love to get all the credit for, for giving this to my family and providing for my family. Hey, I went and built you a house, Right? I went and trained a teacher that can do this. Man, I have to admit, like, this is going to be God, and I won't get any credit for it, right? Like, God's going to provide a place for us to live when the timing's right. May not meet all of our wants, but it'll meet every one of our needs. I may not, I may not be able to, to handpick the, the teacher that comes in and fills this spot, but God knows who that person's going to be, and he's going to provide when his timing is right, Don't envision evil results as though God hasn't already promised alternate plans. Will we embrace the fact that he saved us with a purpose of sanctifying us? He's growing my faith right now. Hopefully he's growing your faith too. Number three, depend on God's presence rather than doubting his involvement. Depend upon God's presence rather than doubting his involvement. People thirsted there for water. They grumble against Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us? So what does Moses do in verse four? He cries to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. The passage ends with, them, with Moses saying, they question, is the Lord among us or not? That's the question they're asking for their test. Are you here with us, God? Is the Lord among us or not? Comes from an invalid assumption that hard times mean God is not in control. Right? They look around and they say, man, things aren't going the way we would like for them to go. That must mean God's not here, that God's not in control, that God's not with us. That's the question on their test. They're saying, God, are you with us? We need to, number one, believe that God knows where he's taking you and what you will need. Believe that God knows where he is taking you and what you will need. Note how the people once again went where they went because the Lord led them there. Their obedience put them in this spot. It says in verse 1, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, and they camped at Rephidim. Like, I remember uh, I taught us, I forget where we even were, um, but it was not long after Andrew and Taylor first started visiting our church. And I taught on the, the fact that God is always with us, but we prefer the times when God is with us in a favorable way, right? Like if we're being obedient to God, we can trust that wherever he leads us, he's leading us for good purposes. So even if we find ourselves in challenging times, challenging circumstances, they're meant for good purposes. They're meant to develop our faith, 
right? It's called a favorable type presence from God. We know that he also has a disciplinary type presence, right? Like when we sin and we're making uh, rebellious type choices, there's challenges that come into our life too, but they're there in response to our sin, right? Still, still grows us and changes us and conforms us, but, but we kind of put ourselves in that predicament, right? Like God had to come and get us and rescue us. There's plenty of other times where we're being obedient to God and we find ourselves in challenging circumstances, and I made the comment that those are times where we can feel at rest knowing that, hey, this isn't because of anything that I'm guilty of doing, right? This is God specifically leading me here to challenge my faith. That's what's happening here. They were brought to this place by the commandment of God. They were led away from the oasis where they had plenty of water, right? And they're brought here for a specific purpose. God directs his people into difficult and trying situations in order to prove his power and build their their faith and character. Which means if we aren't growing in faith, in the knowledge of God, and in godly character, we're wasting opportunities when trials come. That's what they're there for. They're to increase our dependency upon him. Trials then should bring out the best in us, not the worst. People around us should see unwavering trust rather than perpetual complaining. You probably know both types of people, right? You probably know both types of people. There are people who claim to be Christians, and when hard times hit, you're amazed at how it doesn't seem to phase them. They just seem to trust God like without any hesitation. And you might be looking at it and saying, "Man, like I don't see any like, like I don't see how this works out for you." And that person just with unwavering faith believes and trusts that God's going to provide. There's others who claim to be Christians who hard times hit and they're a complete wreck and they're a complete mess, right? And they need people to exhort them, like Hebrews says, to bring them out of that unbelieving spirit. Our spiritual maturity is marked by which type of person we are. Are we the type of people when trials hit, man, we show that unwavering faith, that God has been working and molding us, and here's that testing time. And man, we're like the student who walks in and, and has no anxiety on test day. It's like, hey, I've been paying attention all over the last two weeks. I've taken great notes. I've put in time and study over the last two weeks. Like, I'm ready for this. Unless my teacher is here to trick me or to be vindicative towards me, this test is going to go great for me. That's how it should be when trials hit this week. We've been in the word. We've been prepping ourselves for it. Man, when trials hit, it should be our time to show that unwavering faith. Just because we don't see him working doesn't mean he isn't. See how God constructs the provision of this water with Moses and the elders only, right? Like the people are thinking, you're not gonna provide. All the while, God has a plan in place for how he's going to provide. Now, we don't know how he would have provided if they had simply asked, probably the same way right? Probably the same way. But he brings Moses and he brings the elders and they, they work out this plan where Moses is going to strike the rock. And when he does, the water comes gushing out for the people to drink from. He doesn't abandon us. He's usually working to make the way more clear, to make the way better for us. They feel like he's not here. And yet he's all the while working behind the scenes for their good. Apollos is in this kind of stage right now where he does not want to be in the car without an adult, right? So like if we tell him like, hey, go ahead and load up in the car. We're coming. We're getting all the stuff. He like refuses to get in the car. 
He's, he's afraid that we're going to abandon him in the car. I don't know where that comes from. I think maybe like he was asleep in, a car, in the car one time and we were getting some stuff out and he woke up and, and we weren't right there. And so he thought like, I've been abandoned. Um, what we've tried to communicate to him is, hey, buddy, we're not asking you to carry anything to the car. We're not asking you to help us load the car or unload the car. We're actually putting you in a position where you can just rest and let us work for you, right? But he's like, I don't want to be in the car. I don't want to be abandoned by you guys, Right. That's how the people of Israel are acting right here. It's like, man, you've abandoned us. All the while, God's like, I'm over here working to provide water for you. Like, it's about to come in gushing format, and and you're acting like I've abandoned you. And he hasn't. We need to believe that God knows where he's taking us and what we will need when we get there. Number two, believe that God will always give you far more than you deserve. Believe that God will always give you far more than you deserve. Now, we know how this story goes, but if you're just reading through this, It wouldn't be far-fetched to think that when Moses cries to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. You could very, very easily put in here and go strike the people for their complaining. Right? Like go take your rod and go whip those people for not getting the, the point of, the, of these lessons that I've been giving. And yet, what does God say instead? He says, I'm going to stand before you on the rock, and you're going to strike the rock, and water's going to come out of it. While we could expect the people to have been struck with God's rod of judgment, he instead allows Moses to strike his rock. And the water gushes and flows, not because the people deserve it, but because God makes promises that he keeps. Look what Psalm 105 says. Like, this is a confusing passage because it's like, man, why does God keep yielding to these people who don't deserve his provision? Well, it's because God made a promise. In Psalm 105, 41, he reminds us of why he does it here. It says, he opened the rock and the water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. Why? Verse 42, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. He is in covenant relationship with us. And it started way back with Abraham. And he obligated himself to take care of his people, even when his people don't deserve it. Remember, the children of Israel are ready to divorce him. Like, hey, where have you been? You haven't given to us. You haven't protected us. We might want out of this whole thing. God's like, you're not going anywhere, and I'm going to keep doing what I do. And that's me being in covenant relationship with you and upholding my end of the bargain. He provides for them here. The water comes gushing and flowing God obligates himself to always work for my good because he promised Abraham he would always be that type of God to his people. Think about that. Think about the the ramifications for you today based on that verse. You know why I trust that God's going to be good to me this week and good to you this week and he's going to always be working for good? Because he promised Abraham thousands of years ago that that's the type of God that he is. He's not going to stop being that type of God. He's never stopped being that type of God. He keeps his promises. The water from the rock here dispels all the accusations. He provides for them. He protects them because they deserve the smacking here. They deserve to be struck with the rod. And yet he, uh, he takes it, right? Like we don't have Moses striking God, but we do have God saying, I'm gonna stand on this rock and you're gonna strike the rock that I'm standing on. He protects them. And he shows that he's present with them. Now, we get supernatural 
commentary in the New Testament about this section in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as to what the meaning of some of this is. It says, verse 1, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. We talk about how the Old Testament points to Jesus and there's various ways that that happens, right? Various times that we see images of Jesus in the Old Testament and here's one of them. And what we do know is that in the New Testament, instead of us receiving the smacking that we deserve, Jesus takes it for us so that living water can be given to us, right? Jesus takes the beating. Jesus takes the wrath that we deserve. Because we should read our own story and say, man, what do you want me to do with this people, God? What do you want me to do with Adam, God? He's rebellious, he complains, he grumbles, he fails to trust you most of the time, even though you've taught him over and over and over again. What do you want me to do to him? What's the father say? I'm gonna send my son Jesus for Adam. I'm gonna let Jesus take the wrath that, that I feel towards Adam because of his sin. I'm gonna pour it out on my son so that Adam can be saved. It is the same for you. Right? You ought to be struck by the rod of his judgment for how you fail the test over and over and over again. And yet God keeps providing for you over and over and over again. Why? Because somebody else took the striking. The rock was struck on your behalf and living water now gushes and flows that you get to drink from. You get to have eternal life because of that. Jesus doesn't always give us what we want, but he always satisfies our deepest needs. The real question on God's test here because he's already shown that he's with them by cloud and by fire, is will we abandon him when we feel like we deserve something different from him? Will we abandon him when we feel like we deserve something different from him? Now, as application today, I wanted to go back to the meaning of this place. I told you that they came to Rephidim, and Moses had to rename it, right? He renames it because of their testing and their quarreling. What's interesting, though, is that Rephidim means Resting place means resting place. Now, the circumstances that have been given to us don't sound very restful, right? It's a place with no water. When we drive to Florida on vacation, we, used to, we still stop, but we stop at this resting place on the Alabama-Florida line, right? And we started stopping there because they offered free orange juice, and our kids loved it, right? Like, uh, we got to stop and we got to get orange juice. I've tried to cut this stop out before. Like, hey, we could get to the beach faster if we didn't stop for orange juice. We got to stop for orange juice. It's awesome, right? Like it's the resting place where we get to go to the bathroom and we get orange juice. Well, since COVID, there has been no orange juice, right? And there's still no orange juice. We stop at this resting place, but all it has now is a bathroom and a dolphin that we take pictures with every year, right? Um, <laughs> But it's hardly a resting place anymore because there's no orange juice. It's hard for me to imagine how Rafidim can be called a resting place when there's no water. Like, how can you rest here? There's no water, right? But if you think back to the passage before where the manna was talked about, right? We talked about how God was challenging them. Will you trust me? Will you rest in me, right? The whole idea of the Sabbath and Hey, will you trust me for tomorrow's provision because you can't keep the manna longer than one night and, and you can only do it on the, on the day before the Sabbath because you're not going to get any on the Sabbath because I want you to rest in me. Like he's, he's told them to rest in me. Then he takes them to a place of resting 
where they're going to have to trust him to provide the OJ, trust him to provide the water, because there is none. And they fail the test. But it's important to note that that was supposed to be a resting place. And so I have this question for us to kind of ponder as we leave today. Will we allow times of want, times of uncertainty, and times of waiting to actually be a time when we can rest because of what we know about the Lord? Will we allow times of trial to be actually a time of rest because of what we know about God? Right, like I'm, I'm fighting to feel that this summer as I look for a, a, a house, as I look for a teacher. Like it, it ought to be a, an anxious summer. And there's definitely days where I'm tempted to feel anxious about it all. But I'm also challenging myself, hey, this should be a restful summer. It's a, it's a trying summer, but it should be a restful summer. It should be like Rafidim. There's no water here, but there's gonna be water that comes. The, wa- the water is hidden behind a rock. And when God decides to open it forth, it's going to come gushing out. It should be a time of rest. And it should be a time of me resting in him, not the water that I can see. That's why it's a place of rest. Now, now it gets renamed because all they do is test and quarrel, but it was a place of rest because it was a place to rest in God, not in the oasis that they just came from where it was obvious, hey, this is definitely a great resting place. There's all kinds of water here. He says, I'm going to bring you to a place of rest where there is no water, where you just rest in me. Let me challenge you to see that, that whatever trial, difficulty, challenge you experience, it can be a time of rest if you trust in the goodness and the faithfulness of God who's been faithful to Abraham and all the people since then. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you and we thank you that you are good, that you are not evil, that you are with us, that you protect us, and that you are faithful to provide for us. But God, help us to see the real questions that are being asked. Lord, help us to see that we need to answer that you are all that we need above food and water. Help us to to be able to answer the question that that we won't abandon you. We won't abandon you when, when you don't do things the way that we want you to do them. That instead, we will answer the question and embrace the fact that we do believe that you saved us to sanctify us, which means we do go through times of trial. And we don't try to kick you to the curb when that happens. Instead, we find rest in you. We rest in the fact that you will provide. Help our unbelieving hearts. Exhort us to believe more and more in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.